All right, we are in the midst of a series called Essential Truth. We're taking a look at the 10 big ideas in what's often called systematic theology. We have already looked at the doctrine of God up there in the top left corner, the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of Scripture, that God has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture, inspired the writing of Scripture. It is inerrant, holy, and fully reliable, and it is God's authoritative word for us. Last week, we looked at angels, demons, and even Satan. This morning, we look at man, the biblical doctrine of man. Psalm 8 reads like this. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun or the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David looks into the night sky, the beauty and the glory of it all. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than, depends on which translation, the New American Standard, a little lower than God. Other translations, you have made him a little lower than the spiritual beings or the angels. You crown him, mankind, with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Tim Keller, in his little book on the Psalms, called The Songs of Jesus, said the universe reveals God's glory. Aren't humans just specks of dust in this vastness? Physically, yes. Yet we fill the mind of God. The astonishment of the psalmist should be ours. It's a great word. David is astonished. When I, when I consider the vastness of the heavens, what is man that you take thought of him? You care for him. You've crowned him with glory and with majesty. The astonishment of the psalmist should be ours. Why should God care about us? Because he has made us in his image and given us the world he created to care for.
as his agents. Biblical anthropology, the doctrine of man. This is an important doctrine and one that is, um, well, Owen Strachan is a wonderful young theologian. He just this week, his new book was published called Re-Enchanting Humanity, a theology of mankind. It's a study of the kinds of things and much more that we're going to talk about this morning. It's 432 pages long. Praise God, we only get about 30 minutes. Where do we come from? Why are we special? What about male and female? What's our purpose? What's our problem? Where does that leave us? This morning, I want to say six things, and in a sentence, it might go like this, and you'll notice, as a good preacher, they all start with the letter D. We're going to say this, that we are dependent creatures of God, dignified, being created in His image, different as male and female, designed to glorify God by enjoying him forever, yet depraved in our sin and desperate for the full-orbed salvation of our God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. This will serve as the text we'll maybe look at most this morning. Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know this is the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on day 6, in verse 24, then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. All throughout the creation days, day one, two, three, four, and five, and even here in six, it was good. 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 God is going to now create mankind. And at the end, you'll see in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So here in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. and Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I love that phrase. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves 
on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Maybe the first thing to say about us is that we are the dependent creatures of our God. We are created by God. God existed in complete self-sufficiency in the happy land of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in order to, or out of his desire to communicate his love to even others, and to set in motion a plan to display his glory and the great glory of his grace, God created the universe and God created mankind. We are not the product of an evolutionary process of time and chance. We are, according to the word of God, the climax of his creation. Created by God and for God. Created to know him to enjoy him, to fellowship with him, to commune with him. God created the world and God created us in his image. And in, on day seven in chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Some believe that idea of rest is not merely the completion of God's work, but hints at the desire for it all that he would dwell with his people. That he would commune with them. That he would have relationship with him. But it speaks to the idea that we are finite. We are not infinite. We are creatures. We are not the creator. And thus we are dependent upon him. A wonderful book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. The author talks about us even before the fall, that we are revelation receivers, interpreters, trusters and obeyers. Even before the fall, we were dependent upon God. Our life comes from him and we were in need of him to speak and to reveal himself and his will to us if we were to flourish on the earth. We remain dependent upon God. And so for any of us to think that we can live independently from him, it is the height of foolishness. 
to live as if you, you have no need of God. I was trying to think, what's, what's that like? Maybe, you know, it might be like a 13-year-old boy, junior high boy, lunchroom at school, hanging out with his buddies, talking smack about how he doesn't need his parents. All the while living in the house they pay for, eating the food they pay for, wearing the clothes they pay for. He got to school because they dropped him off. That's the first amen I've gotten in years. I don't need God. I can live life without him. All the while, your very life is sustained by his grace. The psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, 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 and Solomon says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To know that there is a God that he has created all things and that he has established the ways of life and to submit oneself to him and to his wisdom. That is the beginning of wisdom and of life. And so we can rejoice, I think, that we are not merely this product of evolutionary process, but we are the special creation of God to live in relationship with him. And we are set apart, it seems, from all the rest of creation by the fact that we are created in the image of God. Not merely that we're created and thus dependent upon him, but we're created in his image, and thus we have a dignity that is significant, a worth, a value. You, you honor those who are dignified. And you and I are created in the image of God. And there's lots of pages written on what that might mean. Grudem, Wayne Grudem simply says, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The more we know about God and man, the more similarities we will recognize and the more fully we will understand what Scripture means when it says that man is in the image of God. It surely means that we are more like God than any other aspect of creation. We are living beings that are capable of embodying God's communicable attributes, those attributes of God that he shares with us. We can embody those and we can live those out, things like love and grace and truthfulness and wisdom. It may be also tied to this idea of ruling in the place of God. The theologians will call us the vice regents of the king. That God has created the universe, he has created the earth, he has created us, and he has delegated to us the authority to Genesis 1, 
rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. We are not only to live in relationship with God, but everywhere we go to represent him and the attributes that he has shared with us. So one of the things this means is that every person in the world is created in the image of God. And they are to be treated with value and honor and dignity. No matter how old they are, whether they are young or they are old. No matter how smart they are or not. No matter what color they are, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what socioeconomic background they come from, no matter anything about them, every single person, the world over, every single person that you work with, every single person that lives near you, every single person here in our city, whether they live on that side of town or this side of town, every person in the greater Houston area, our country, all over the world. They are to be treated with dignity, even despite their viability. Little babies in the image of God in the womb are to be treated with honor and value and dignity. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 9 where God issues this initial law about murder. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. It's the institution of human government and even capital punishment, which no doubt has to be governed with wisdom, but there it is. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. Jesus, little brother James, wrote a book in the New Testament. And in James chapter 3, he was talking about the danger of our tongue. Actually talking about the power of the tongue and how wonderful it can be in blessing God and yet how terrible it can be at the same time in cursing men, and he adds, who are made in the image of God. And he says, brothers, these things ought not to be. That we would come on Sunday and sing the praises of God, but then show up Monday and curse men who are created in the image of God. We are distinct we are something else, reflections of God upon the earth. So we are created by God, thus we're dependent upon him. We are created in his image, thus we have a dignity and a value and an honor. 
above all the rest of creation. Third, we are created in the image of God, male and female, created he, them. We're different as men and women. Yep, I said it. There are two genders. If you follow it all, what's going on in our culture, that is very politically incorrect. I don't even know the definitions of most of these. There is male and there is female. That's clear enough. But there's transgender and gender neutral and non-binary and odd gender and cisgender and gender queer and two-spirit and third gender. There's all of these. There's none of these. There's a combination of these and more. That is the madness of our age. The Bible is very, very clear that mankind has been created in the image of God and created male and female. And it is a wonderful thing. Men and women are equal, equally created in the image of God, and thus both have equal value, equal dignity, equal personhood. Yet at the same time, we are created distinct in roles for both in the family and in the church, in the home and in the church. Husbands, as we have often said, as I have often said from this pulpit and other places, from clues in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and even clearer teaching in passages like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, we husbands are the heads defined in Ephesians 5, I think best as the servant leaders of our families. We bear the primary responsibility for Christ-like provision and protection and leadership of our wives and of our children. We are the servant leaders. Women, wives, the servant lovers who come alongside their husbands to compliment them and be, as God will call her in Genesis chapter 2, a helper suitable. Just as God is a helper to his people because we so desperately need it, so too is the wife a helper to her husband because he so desperately needs it. Husband, wife, servant, leader, servant, lover, complimenting one another in this beautiful thing called male and female. We are designed to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Some of you are familiar with the great Westminster Catechism or other catechisms that come alongside to try and help us teach one another truth gleaned from the scriptures. And when talking about the purpose for which mankind has been made, the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him 
forever. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, and then in everything else he has published, has changed one little word for that, that in that that has been helpful to so many. What is the chief end of man? What is your chief end? What is mine? To glorify God and enjoy him forever? He says, maybe it's even better, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He puts it in a phrase like this, that God is most glorified in us when and as we are most satisfied in him. God longs for us to be filled with joy, to be, if you will, happy. That's why Piper kind of coined the term Christian hedonism. That God desires that we experience pleasure forevermore. And yet that pleasure, the greatest and most lasting of pleasures, is found, as Psalm 16 says, at God's right hand. That pleasure is found in God and in his ways, in knowing him and trusting his word and obeying him I think all of us can probably testify to the passing pleasures of sin. Sin's going to make me happy. Sin's going to bring me life. Sin's going to bring me the pleasure I so long for. And in the moment, maybe it does, but how quickly it passes. But in those moments, when those temptations come our way, and by the grace of God, we, we, we trust God, and we push aside that lie that life and happiness and pleasure is going to be found there, and we resist it, and we trust God, and we obey, I think we can all testify that there's a pleasure in that that even exceeds the pleasure that we may have found in sin. Because the greatest happiness, the greatest pleasure is found in relationship with God, trusting his word and obeying him. Our problem is, though, that we're sinners. And we keep believing the lies. And we keep giving in to the inclination in our flesh that says, no, life isn't found in God, it's found in this. But our greatest pleasure or the design of our lives is to glorify God. Ramesh Richard, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, was giving a talk one time to a bunch of business leaders in Dallas. These were some high-profile kind of guys, fast-paced kind of guys, wealthy kind of guys, influential kind of guys, but he was trying to encourage them that they were made for more. They were made for something that transcends all of the earthly success that they had found. And he was posing to them, why is it that you are here? 
What is it that you're meant to live for that transcends what you might do for a living? His answer was, in only the way that Ramesh Richard could say it, what is your purpose in life? It is to make God look good and to make Christ well known. To make God look good. That was his way of saying to glorify God. To live in such a way that God is made to look great. In the good times of our lives, in the hardships of our lives, in the home and in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in the church family as it gathers any and everywhere you and I go. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might and seek to glorify God in it. We are created beings dependent upon God. We are created in his image, thus we have dignity we are different, male and female, created in his image, male and female. We are designed, purposed to bring glory to God. Again, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what you and I do for a living. The question is, what is it that we're living for? Some of you are in sales. Some of you are coaches. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are engineers, bunches of you are engineers, some of you are stay-at-home moms, some of you tutors, some of you do this, some of you do that, I pastor, wonderful, but what is it that transcends what we do for a living is what we live for, and God has created you and God has created me to glorify to make God look good, to make Christ well-known. But we already touched on it. The problem is that we're depraved. In chapter 1, we are created in the image of God, male and female, as the vice regents of God to rule over his creation. Chapter 2 is a closer look at this creation account as to how God took the dust of the earth to make Adam and breathed into him the breath of life. And how Adam could not find a helper suitable for him and God said, I'll make you one. And put Adam to sleep and took a rib and fashioned a woman and brought the woman to Adam. And in the first recorded words from a human's mouth, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And the text says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve in the garden with their God. Life. But then it all went wrong. The serpent, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, 
From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Some of y'all will remember we did the series on David. And I preached most of those, except one, I was going to be out of town, and Saul Gonzalez preached one of them and knocked it smooth out of the park. And bunches of you have said to me, is he going to get to preach again? Next Sunday, Saul is going to preach, and Saul's going to take up sin. The doctrine of sin, and so I don't want to steal any of his thunder. But into the wonder of being created by God in his image, male and female, designed to glorify him, enjoy him forever, live in relationship with him and represent him as people of love and kindness and grace and purity and the like. Something went wrong. Something went terribly wrong. Sin. Disobedience to God. And Adam's sin here had lasting effects upon everyone that would be born of him. Such that every one of us are born sinners. We do not think as we should. We do not feel as we should. We don't speak as we should. We don't do as we should. There is an inclination within us to sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says there is none righteous. No, not one. More on that from Saul next week, but finally this leaves us as mankind finally desperate. Desperate for the full orb salvation of our God. If indeed we were created by him in his image, male and female, to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him, to trust him and obey him, and yet we have fallen into sin and under his wrath, then what we need is salvation and we're desperate for it. And of course, the good news of the Bible is that God has provided a way of his love and grace for sinful men and women like you and me to be forgiven, to be renewed, and one day to be made like God. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit 
devising a plan whereby sinners like you and me can be forgiven of our sins and increasingly made more and more like Jesus, looking forward to the day when we will be like him and he will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for sinners like you and me. And where, whereby, where we sinned, Jesus, the son of God, never did. We were unholy, he was holy. We were unjust, he was just. We were sinful, he was sinless. He said, my food, what I live on, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Jesus Christ came and lived that life that you and I could never live. And then he died upon a cross and took upon himself your sins and mine. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God raised him from the dead and Jesus Christ is alive. And Jesus Christ can change our lives. When I talk about the full orb salvation of God, good night. How do you talk about that so briefly? But justification, sanctification, and glorification. So what does that mean? Friends, you and I are desperate for forgiveness and to be made right with God because of our sin that has separated us from him. And, and because of Christ, when we trust in him, the fancy word is that we're justified. What it means is that our sins are forgiven by God and the righteousness of Jesus, which he, which he lived and earned through his righteous life, it gets imputed to our account. And very practically, what it means is that God loves us and accepts us. Not because of any righteousness we have in and of ourselves, but because our sins have been forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. So that through trusting in Jesus, we are, if you will, in this circle of the love of God. And we can't ever get out of it. That's amazing. It happens in a moment, and it's true of every child of God. As they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven. Righteousness of Jesus imputed to you. Adopted into his family. He loves you, he accepts you, and it's all because of Christ. And then the process of sanctification begins. The Holy Spirit of God comes to reside in the child of God's life. And he begins to renew their desires and help us over time put our sin to death and live and trust God and his word and obey him. And so from that beginning comes a life of continual reading the word of God, 
praying for God's help, seeking to trust him, obey him, stumbling into sin, confessing our sin, repenting, trusting him, keep on following him, read his word, come to church, fellowship with the people of God, read his word, trust his word, pray, God help me trust and obey and stumble into sin and confess our sin and apologize when we need to and repent and keep trusting and uh, fight a faith from the beginning of our Christian life until he takes us home. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's one of these rides, but he's at work in the lives of his people, helping us to become more and more like Jesus. More and more people of love and of kindness and of grace and of purity and the like. Looking forward to that future day of glorification. when he will come again and make us like Christ. The Apostle John said it like this in 1 John chapter 2, I think. Y'all just sit there while I have a little Bible study here. It's the one that comes to my mind, but I don't want to misquote it. I can't remember it. It says we're going to be like him. That's what it says. We're going to be changed. No more sin. No more depravity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy to be your created people, to know you, to worship you, to hear from you through your word, to trust your good ways, to obey. What a joy to know of your great love and mercy and grace towards us in our sinful state. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet of your mercy you sent Christ to live and die and rise. That those who would trust in him would be forgiven counted righteous, adopted into your family, and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, safe and secure in your hands forevermore. And that we can read your word and we can pray to you and we can worship you and we can commune with you and through the good and the bad we can trust in you and walk with you, looking forward to a day when we shall see you face to face and we'll be like you. God, for any that are here today who are spurning you and living as if they are autonomous from you and don't need you, don't need your forgiveness, don't need your help, don't need your leadership, that they'll be just all right without you. God, might you open their eyes. 
to their great desperation. And God, might you draw them to turn from themselves to Jesus, your son. And God, as we now sing and head out from here, may we go out in the joy of the Lord, knowing that we have the message of the grace of God for the men, women, young boys and girls in our lives. That whether they know it or not, are desperate as well for a relationship with you. We'll pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.